Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it to turn to. There's no other place that we can look in this world that has your eternal word, Lord, beside your word. And we thank you for your revelation. We recognize that revelation is a privilege, that we have received revelation from you, and we're highly privileged and favored because of that. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives in us that know you, who can teach us and help us understand your word and apply it to our lives. We ask for his work in our lives this morning, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today, as we continue our series, it's not a very long one, just a few weeks, but a little detour series on the Calvary Chapel distinctives, um, we come to um, kind of the purpose of the church. You know, last week we looked at calling, and that calling is everything. Everything flows from calling. God does not uh, call the equipped. He equips the called. And all the grace that we need, all the power that we need, everything that we need is tied to his calling. And it's important that we don't get those mixed up to where we're thinking that, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all these things and that'll produce a calling. No, the, the, the calling is what starts everything. And then he equips and gives us all the grace. Pastor Chuck used to say, where God guides, God provides. So if he's calling us and he's guiding us to do a certain thing, whatever it is, it would be cruel, unfair, unwise, and unjust to not give us everything that we need to do the things that he's called us to do. Now, he doesn't give us sometimes those things until we're in the moment where we need those things. Some things he gives us ahead of time, the basics, that there's a, we're called to a life of faith. The righteous shall walk by faith. So we, he calls us to depend upon him he's never going to call us into something where we don't have to depend on him we saw last week where he said apart from me you can do nothing he's speaking that in the right in the middle of the context of them fighting about who's the greatest you know that that just went against their pride and they're just i can't believe this this i'm hearing what i'm saying because i'm such a asset to him what i bring to the table is so amazing He can't do without me because I'm who I am. No, he chose you on purpose to demonstrate that he's the one that's going to do the work because we have nothing in ourselves. We can get that backwards. So we looked at that. But this week, we're going to look at kind of how he has set things up related to the purpose of the church. There are a lot of opinions out there. You may be very familiar with this from personal experience, maybe not as exposed to it 
as maybe others, but there's a lot of different opinions about what the church should be about when it gathers and who gets to make those decisions. There's the, all kinds of models about the purpose of the church. There's the business and marketing model where we run a church like a business uh, and we just translate business principles that someone learned in college and translate that into the church and that's somehow going to bring success and all these things. There's that model. There's also the seeker model which the, they believe the purpose of when the church gathers is supremely for a vehicle for evangelism and seekers come in and the whole goal is to get everyone to come to church, come to church, come to church, invite people to come to church, which isn't bad. We should invite people to church. It's fine. But the purpose, the supreme purpose of when the church gathers is not to reach seekers. It's to make disciples. That's what Jesus said. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things that I've commanded you. So that's what the purpose of when the church gathers. It's to make disciples. There's also the signs and wonders model. As wonderful as signs and wonders are, that's not... We can't make those things happen. The, the, book of Acts occur, the events in the book of Acts occurred over a 30-year span. It's easy to, to think that there's miracles happening every five minutes, but it, that wasn't the case. We can't say, we want this to happen, God, and demand it to happen, and it happens, and all these things. It's, the supernatural is great. It's a blessing. I respect people that want to see God's glory. I want to see God's glory. I want to see him work among us and all those things. But signs are usually following the gospel being preached in the context of unbelievers. That's what you see in the book of Acts. There are other gifts. I mean, all the gifts are supernatural. Don't get me wrong. But in terms of how people kind of expect certain, you know, miraculous things happening all the time, and if we don't have miracles that we see happening among us all the time, something's going wrong, and we're not doing things biblically, or we don't have enough faith, or whatever it is. So there's that model. There's also the tradition model which is, and this can be in any one of these types of churches as well, where they can say, basically, this is the way we've always done it. We ain't budging. (laughs) This is how we do it. And there's certain essentials that every church needs to hold to that we shouldn't budge on. There's non-negotiables, but there's a lot of things that are different in every church because of the unique place that that church has in that community and the unique people that God has brought to be a part of that church body. That's why Pastor Chuck, I believe, was so brilliant, and one of the reasons why God allowed him to be in a denomination that didn't allow him a lot of freedom for 17 years, doing these things that were kind of gimmicky and, uh, you know, wasn't feeding the sheep and all of that, and um, he, he, when he finally was caught in the middle of this move of the Spirit that was the chapel movement, the Jesus movement, however you want to word it, he did not want to, when all of a sudden he had these hippies that were getting saved and they wanted to go out and plant churches, he didn't say, okay, now you got to do exactly how everything's been done at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. He didn't do that. He said, I don't want to make this a denomination. I want you to have the freedom to hear the Spirit for what, what that particular, whatever flock that you're serving and what's going on in that city, you can be um, hearing him because Costa Mesa is different than Keys. You know, Keys is a city over there, kind of by Turlock. Um, or different than Tracy, or different than Stockton, or, you know, and I love the diversity in the body of Christ. But we can be so caught in our tradition and ways of doing things that we're not open to new ways that the Holy Spirit wants to work. Jesus didn't heal the same way. He didn't work with, inter- interface with people the same way. 
You know, there was different ways that he worked, and he always keeps us on, on, the, on the dependency side of things where we're, okay, Lord, what do you want to do? I mean, I was going through the book of Proverbs. He leaned on me heavily to, to go through these Calvary distinctives. So, okay, it's your church. You know, we're going to do what you want. But we have to be careful. There's all these different models. There's also the we don't have a clue model. You know, and I don't say that making fun of people or looking down on them. I'm, I feel bad for them. I feel sorry for them because the leaders are trying to figure out what the church is supposed to be about. And they're, they're reading books. They're going on blogs. They're, they're buying materials. They're going to seminars trying to figure out what the church should be about. What's our identity? All these things. It's hard enough when you know what it's supposed to be about. I can't imagine going through it with not knowing what it's supposed to be about. And, ex- and we're not free to experiment on the body of Christ. That's that's for sure. So there, lastly, there's the biblical model. And in fairness, most churches believe that they're, is the, they're engaged in the biblical model. And um, there's different ways to do things. We understand that. No one's aiming at trying to be unbiblical. Um, there's proof texts that people offer for certain things and all those things. But, you know, I, I want to make it clear that there's no perfect churches. And we don't have the corner on truth on everything at all. And we're always learning, we're always growing, and it's true for our own lives as Christians. We have to be open to that and, and not feel like we, have the, we know everything there is to know about everything and all of that. We have to guard against that. We, can, we have a lot to learn from other believers, other churches, and, and so, but our desire at Calvary Chapel is to be as close to the biblical model as we possibly can and take everything and test it by the scriptures. See, there's a lot of successful things out there in the church world. A lot of times people measure success differently. You know, Jesus wasn't trying to attract the most amount of people that he possibly can, could. In fact, there was a point at which they wanted to take him by force and make him king. And he started saying some very difficult things and was weeding out people because numbers aren't the most important thing. People with hearts to be what God wants them to be and to be willing to take up their cross daily and to be disciples, that's what God wants. And whether that's five people or 5,000 people, it doesn't matter. The point is we need to be fruitful. We need to be engaged in what he wants us to be engaged in. And uh, the, the things that people measure success by can be quite a bit different at times. So the point is God's called us to be what he's called us to be. We have a unique place in the body of Christ. We don't believe we're better. We don't believe we're worse. We just believe that we have a different place. And so we, I wanted to go over kind of why we do what we do in the sense of being led by the Spirit and, and, and what we practice in, related to when we come together. Everything should fall through a certain kind of grid, so to speak. So we want to look at that. So one of the phrases, and this is what would be the title if I were to title this uh, teaching, is, is it's Jesus' church, let him build it. That kind of sums up everything related to um, kind of the, our view of the purpose of the church. In this text in Matthew chapter 16, um, and we'll be looking at a few different texts this morning, um, the Lord Jesus, he's, he's in the northern part of Israel in Caesarea Philippi. When you go on a tour to Israel, usually go to Caesarea Philippi. There's a big, massive cave uh, that was nicknamed the Gates of Hell, and it was, you know... A, dedicated to false god and all of that and it was very fitting that jesus talks about the gates of hell because he's he's kind of using that as a launching point into real gates of hell related to the defense mechanisms of uh, the demonic uh, world and satan and all of those uh, things so 
he asked him a question in verse 13. He, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And notice their answer in verse 14. That, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. See, I believe that Jesus knew what they, people thought of him, what they were saying about him, but he was going somewhere with all of this with the disciples. He was wanting to draw something out of them. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I believe Jesus knew that God had revealed this to Peter that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and he wanted Peter to confess that before the Lord Jesus and before the other disciples. I believe he also wanted to acknowledge that God has to be involved for a person to come to that conclusion, that it's not independent. He knew they were fighting about who's the greatest. It's not like he had some heavy revy that was unique to everybody else, and um, that's heavy revelation there, uh, just to know that. But... um, and, and he didn't want that to, you know, them to think that Peter came to that conclusion by himself. Jesus said no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. So we have to be convicted by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to work and show us that we need salvation, convict us of our sins. And then he testifies to our hearts that we need to rec- receive Christ and trust in Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. Now we can resist that, but that is still the work of the Spirit there. So that he wants them to know that. And then lastly, he wants to teach them four things about his church in verse 18. So let's read that. Also, I, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Gates were protection mechanisms for cities back in that day. Though it's, That's where the place that, that, that con- want, uh, armies would want to come and conquer a city, there would be a walled city, and then there would be gates, and that would be the weakest place. And if they could get through those gates, they could get into the city. And, you know, when, when God uh, used um, Joshua, you know, to, you know, with the, the, in that battle there, the, the walls fell. He didn't even use the gates. He just made the, all the walls crumble, so he didn't even need to go through the gates there with Jericho. So, uh, but the gates are protective mechanisms mechanisms. So he's saying that, first of all, Jesus is saying that it's it's his church. He doesn't say it's Peter's church. He says it's his church. He secondly, he says that he would build it. That is, Jesus would build his church. We see that right in the verse. Thirdly, it would be built on Peter's confession. And when he uses the word rock, he said, you are Peter, which means small rock, like a kind of like a, a pebble. And he said, and upon this rock, I will build my church. The word rock there, that's a different Greek word. That's the word for boulder, a massive, huge rock. So he's saying, your name is Pebble, and upon this boulder, talking about what Peter said, his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, he would build his church. So the church, how does the church expand? The church expands by somebody recognizing that they're a sinner, that they're less than perfect, they've sinned against God, and they can't save themselves, and they're trusting in what Jesus did for them on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. 
to pay their way to heaven, and they can't earn it, and they receive it as a gift, and they repent, and they receive that. When someone does that, now they're added to the church. God just, Jesus just built his church because they received and appropriated the truth of what Peter said, that he is the, the Messiah, he is the Christ, and his church gets built, it gets added. The body of Christ is larger in general there. I'm not talking about a local body. I mean, that happens on a smaller scale when people in a local body preach the gospel and people get saved. That, that local body is added to if that's where God's called them. Sometimes it's not. We're not. When we lead people to Christ, we don't know where God's going to place them. We can't assume that it's always going to be with the church we're at. It could be another church. We have to be focused on the whole body of Christ and building the whole body of Christ. Now, we need to follow up with them, help them make a connection if they're called to another church, help them get, in, you know, help them grow. We still have that responsibility until, you know, it's appropriate for us to kind of let that process take care of itself. But God adds to the church by building the body of Christ. But one of the things he says that nothing, even the gates of Hades, can prevent it from going forward. He says that at the end of verse 18. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What is it? The church. The church is moving forward. It's going to move forward. The church is going to be here all the way to the rapture. And then there's going to be tribulation saints that are going to get saved after the rapture in the the seven-year tribulation. So there's, the church is going to exist. When we say we have to reach young people because we're one generation from the church going extinct is not possible. It's not going to happen. It doesn't mean that we don't reach out to young people and try to pass it on. We need to do all those things. But the church will be here at the rapture when Jesus snatches his church up. It's going to happen. Nothing can stop. Even the gates of Hades, even the hell itself can't stop the church going forward. We're more than conquerors. We need to walk in that. That's the reality. So he's saying all this. So I'm the senior pastor, and it's important to be reminded that if you haven't, and maybe you haven't heard us say this and talk about this, but it's not, this church is not my church. I'm called to serve this church, it's, it's, but it's Jesus' church. Pastor Chuck used to pound that in us. Fellows, don't say it's your church. It's the Lord's. Okay, Pastor Chuck, I'm not having any intention of, but you know, the thing is, we have to be reminded of that, and, and there's lots of things that happen here that I don't care for, it's, it wouldn't be my preference, and, and that wasn't the case in the very beginning, the very beginning it was like, I believe, because I had it modeled for me in many different contexts, that God uses my preferences, and sometimes he does, but one time, one time the Lord spoke to my heart and said, why should you get everything how you want it in the church? No one else gets that. Why should you be the only one? Oh, okay. That's a good point. You know? And the more I've let go and the more I've recognized that the Holy Spirit leads in different ways apart from my preferences, the people have been blessed. And I'm not saying I've arrived. I have a long ways to grow in that area too. But, but it's true. It's not my church. He hasn't called me to build the church. He's called me to build up the church. He's called all of us to build up the church. But he hasn't called me to build the church. He's called me to share my faith as a Christian, just like he's called you to share your faith as a Christian. He's called me to disciple people in evangelism. But he hasn't called me to add to the numbers of this church. 
And you may see, like, well, it's not big of, that big of a difference. Evangelism is adding. No, because there's times where he doesn't lead people to come here, but he, he leads people to go to other churches after they get saved. I mean, I'm inviting them. It's not that I'm trying to repel them, but that happens sometimes. They have a connection with a group of people that have been sharing the gospel with them for a long time. And they maybe have visited a handful of times, but we just happen to be on the, the harvest end of things. And now God wants them to go and be a part of that fellowship. Great. As long as it's a true church. I'm not talking about a cult or anything. But, you know, that, so you can't look at that. You can't look at that and say, well, I have to have numbers. And it's, it's sad that many pastors are so consumed with numbers. And, and I'm not saying I'm above that. I mean, I've, I've thought about numbers, too. But the point is, is that Pastor Chuck used to say, just make them the best fed, best loved sheep. Focus on the chairs that are full, not the empty ones. God will take care of all of that. You just love the people that God's given you uh, to care for and to be faithful and see what he does. And we've aimed to do that. So he's called me to feed and tend sheep. You know, he said to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend my lambs. He didn't say, if you love me, multiply my sheep. He said, if you love me, tend them and feed them. So I have to know that, and I feel so bad for people that don't understand that. He's called me to make disciples. He's called all of us to be part of that, as we'll get to in a moment. So there's a cycle, and this is biblical. We're called, every one of us, again, there's no gift of evangelism in the Bible. There's the office of evangelist. They equip the saints on how to preach the gospel to people. And they may be really good at preaching the gospel, And just because someone's good at preaching the gospel doesn't mean that they're called to be an evangelist. But they may, just like a lot of things, and we do things repeatedly, we get better and better at those things. Sometimes people are really good at preaching the gospel because they've been doing it a lot. And they weren't that good in the very beginning. I was horrible at it in the very beginning. Trust me, really bad. I mean, I can't believe anyone ever got saved. Um, But, you know, it's just, you just share the gospel with people. And, And so he's... People get better and better and better at it. But as people go out, the goal of making disciples as far as God's concerned, and this is in, in part, there's other purposes too, but it's for you and I to be so mature that we can go outside and preach the gospel, lead someone to Christ, and then bring them in to be discipled, and then they grow until they get to the point where they can preach the gospel out there, and they lead people to Christ, and those people come in to be discipled. There's no one in the New Testament, there's no one in the book of Acts that receives Christ in a church. I challenge you to find someone that receives Christ in a church. I'm not talking about a synagogue, that's missions. When we go, when Paul used to go into the synagogues and preach the gospel, that wasn't a Christian church. That was, a, that was him going like on a missions trip and going inside of a, a synagogue, preaching the gospel, and, and so forth. Now, we know that it happened. I don't want you to misunderstand me. People receive Christ in churches, just like they do here, like they do other churches. We need to preach the gospel. There's unbelievers there. But there's a difference between doing preaching the gospel when unbelievers happen to come and you invite them or whatever and turning the whole service into geared towards reaching seekers. And what happens is people use man-made messages that are all man-focused that appeal to seekers and they starve the sheep. And I'm not saying they mean to do it. I'm sure it's very accidental. They just have been taught that model. And people, get they don't grow. They don't become disciples. Just like there's a book called Not a Fan. And it's about God doesn't want fans. 
He wants disciples. He wants people that follow him, not just are fond of him. Very important for us. So that's the cycle. So if we're unwilling to preach the gospel out there, we're interrupting that cycle. Because God wants us to reach the lost in, in, in our lives and be able to reproduce and be able to, to have people come to Christ through us. And it's not wrong to invite people to church to have them get saved. Yes, if that's great. Use every means possible. But we should be able to lead someone to Christ out there and have him bring him in here to be disciple. So we know it's his church. He said he would build it. You know, we know what he's going to build on, the truth of the Messiah, and he's the Messiah. And nothing can prevent the church from going forward. You know all that. Let's look at how Jesus builds his church now. And there's two main passages I want us to go to. The first one is Acts 2. Let's go there, Acts chapter 2. We won't be going back to Matthew, unless the Lord leads me to, but I'm not aware of that yet. Acts chapter 2. And I want to look at the practical things that God uses to build his church, to, to mature his church. Because he hasn't left it up to leaders to, to, to just experiment on God's people. It's, it's right in Scripture. Acts chapter 2, I want to begin reading in verse 42. Acts 2, 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. This is a foundational passage that we hold very dearly to our hearts or hold to very dearly in Calvary Chapel, Acts 2.42. And Peter, just for the context here, Peter has just been preaching the gospel, and around 3,000 people received Christ in one day. What did Peter preach? The boulder. The boulder. His confession that Jesus is the Messiah. And what did Jesus do? He added to the church. Because he said, upon this rock... This boulder, I will build my church. He built upon Peter's confession, the truth of that confession, that he is the Messiah. That's what Jesus uses for people to become part of the church. And then we're told what Jesus, is, Jesus led the apostles to have, um, to do, and to be a part of in this brand new church. He says in verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and prayers. Now notice the word steadfastly there in verse 42. It's emphasizing something. It just didn't say that they're doing it, and it's a thing that they do. They steadfastly, they continued steadfastly in these things. God knows that these four things are so important and so powerful in our lives to grow as believers. And we would think there's a big, long list. Now there's some other things, obviously, as part of this. There's the baptism with the Holy Spirit. There's evangelism. You know, there's, there's lots of things that we see in other places. But he emphasized these are the only four things that he said they continued steadfastly in. So they steadfastly continued in the apostles' doctrine, the word of God. 
Now, we're going to be looking at the importance of the Word of God as a whole, you know, in next week or the week after, and, and why we believe it's important and all these things. But everything should be centered around the Word of God. The Word of God protects all these, the other three things. Have you thought about that? They protect the other three things because if we know God's word, we're going to know what true fellowship is. We're going to be engaged in breaking of bread and communion. And we're going to be knowing that our prayers are biblical and effective and all these things. It's the standard by which all things are tested. Nobody should have so much authority, spiritual authority, that they're above being tested by this book. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 where they tested what he said daily to make sure what he was saying was true. And it's called being a Berean, because those people were from Berea. So God's called each of us to test everybody, myself included. Never give anybody that much liberty to where you don't test them by God's word. Never. That's the standard. It's It's the foundation, really, for the Protestant Reformation. Because instead of going by tradition... Martin Luther said we need to go by God's word alone. That's the final authority. And to test everything, including the doctrine of grace, which is so important related to salvation, that that's the the place from which we get the doctrines of grace. So the word of God, fellowship. Now, what's fellowship? We don't really use that word. It's the Greek word koinonia. And it means at its core to share. And, And, you know, a popular word now that's used in the church world is community. And, I, and that's probably the closest we can get. I'm not critical of it. It's fine that, the, you know, it is true, though, that unbelievers can have community, but they can't have koinonia. But you can't go around saying koinonia. That, I mean, we could, but, um, but the point is, it's a supernatural thing. Fellowship is just not hanging out with people. It's not just friendship. It's, it's a spiritual connection with somebody by talking about the things of the Lord. I don't understand how it happens. I don't understand the mechanics of it, how you can talk about the Lord with the believer and you get built up spiritually as a result of it. It's not talking about sports. It's not talking about current events. It's not talking about any of those things. And it's fine to have relationships with people when you're not talking about those things. It's not like we can only talk about the things of the Lord with another believer. So I'm not saying that it's wrong to talk about those other things. But engaging in fellowship... It's, it's sharing spiritual things with another believer and we're spiritually built up. And we don't understand how it happens, but we know that it does and it's important. That's why one of the most potent times on Sundays is before and after the service related to fellowship. Because we can talk about the things of the Lord. We can be willing and able to use a spiritual gift that we have and to build somebody else up. We should always be looking to build somebody else up. Breaking of bread, that's communion. That's talking about the themes of the cross, keeping the themes of the cross before us, and <clears throat> excuse me, and receiving communion like we will today. It's very important we don't forget what Jesus did for us. And he put this in place for us so that we, we wouldn't forget. Excuse me. <clears throat> and then prayers. <coughs> prayers are important. We have a prayer meeting seven days a week currently. It's very powerful to have prayer that often. It's beautiful just to be open to him ministering to us as we minister to him and all of that. And it's important. That's why we pray before the service. With the bullet points up there, that's not just a ritual that we go through. That's 
it's important that we pray. It's important that we have pre-service prayer and we're here praying, praying for the service, praying for one another, praying for needs in the body, praying for things that are going on in the world, all these things. Now, you can look at these things and say, on a personal level, because the church is just people who are the church. So on a personal level, it's important to focus on these as well. I mean, not just collectively, but it has to happen collectively, but also individually. The apostles' doctrine in our own lives, in our personal lives, making sure that we have fellowship with other believers, not just on Sundays, but other times. Um, Breaking of bread, thank you. To have communion. You can have communion in your home. You don't have to be a pastor to administer communion. doesn't give any rules related to that. You can have communion with your family. Just, it's just remembering the cross and remembering what Jesus did for us. Having prayers, having family prayer, having prayers with other friends at times. It's beautiful. The extent to which we engage in these things is the extent to which we're going to grow. And if we just decide to not engage in these things, then we're going to not grow how God intends. So these are the foundational things. It's beautiful. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for our second passage. Ephesians chapter 4, I want to begin reading in verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but... Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Context of Ephesians 4, and I'm not going to go into depth because the men and women are going to be going through Ephesians and they're going to definitely focus on chapter 4. but the context is, is Paul's writing to this church and he's just finished in chapters 1 through 3 going over there in our inheritance in Christ. And now we, beginning in Ephesians 4.1, it says, that Now let us walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And he talks about unity from there, the unity of the faith. One Lord, one baptism, one, you know, all those things. And he gets into how he gave gifts, the Lord Jesus did. And he starts in verse 42, um, or, or um, verse 11 rather and says he himself that's Jesus gave some to be apostles some prophets some evangelists some pastors and teachers sometimes you may hear the term the five-fold ministry Any, how many of us have heard that five-fold ministry okay just me cool um, <laughs> uh, but the apostles prophets evangelists and pastors and teachers and it's important for us to understand that for pastors there, it's, you see the word some before all of that, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, but then there's not the word some before teachers, because it's because that those are pastors and teachers are, are 
connected. So there should be a hyphen there, pastor-teacher. Sometimes you hear people talk about that they're a pastor-teacher. That's what they're referring to there. So he get, these are what I call the office gifts. These are leadership gifts, office gifts, and they have a specific role in the body of Christ. And we see that role in verse 12 for the equipping of the saints. And the word equipping means to put something in its intended condition. They would use this word to describe when they were mending their nets or they were setting a bone. They would use this word. So it's talking about putting us in our intended spiritual condition and maturity in the body of Christ. And he says that these leaders equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who's doing the primary work of ministry there in verse 12? The people. They're doing the, 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 the primary amount of, of ministry there for the edifying of the body of Christ. And he says how long it's supposed to happen? Well, it's a long time, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or complete man there. And he says that what it will protect us from, verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. See, when you, when you leave the word of God and when you stop having the apostles' doctrine being the priority it's supposed to be, whether personally or corporately as a church, now you're susceptible to all kinds of false teaching that's out there. And false teaching doesn't come and knock on the door and say, I'm false teaching, believe me, please. It's enticing. It's all over television, Christian television, false teaching, things that aren't true. They're not, they're not biblical. And people just, they don't know because they're not grounded in Scripture. And we have to be grounded in Scripture. So that's in part what equipping does with the apostles' doctrine. But equipping is more than just the apostles' doctrine. It's a whole bunch of other things that are done to help people be mature. But, but that's so, so important. As he says there in verse 14 that by the trickery of men and there's cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting, there's bad motivations that we don't see that God sees. And these people are dangerous. That's why Jesus talked about beware of false teachers, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. And when you see a sheep devouring other sheep, you need to take a really good look. It's probably a wolf that's dressed in a sheep costume when you look a little closer because sheep don't eat sheep. So that's what we watch for as shepherds. We watch for sheep getting devoured, and false teaching always devours people and causes harm. And one of the most subtle ways it causes harm is the man-centered messages that puts people's focus on themselves and not on God and not on other people. And they use Christianity as a tool to try to make them as prosperous as possible related to the world's definition of prosperity instead of God's definition of prosperity. And it's sad. And they use it as a self-help mechanism. And we have to beware of those things because it's all over the place. It's so predominant. Now look what God's motivation for us in verse 15 is. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him. A healthy leader is pointing people to Jesus. He's the head of the church. He's the true senior pastor. Pointing people to him. And, but God wants us to grow up. He wants us to grow If we're not growing, there's something wrong. He wants us to grow. He wants me to grow. He doesn't want us to be the same spiritual maturity three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now. He wants us to continue to grow. But we have to be walking in the fullness of the purpose of the church and a church that does those things so that we can grow. We don't want to be working in to, against our church that, that, that we're in. We want to be working with it related to 
um, our, our, our spiritual growth. So then he continues there, and he says in verse 16, from whom the whole body, notice the word whole there, it's important, from whom the whole body, joining it together by what, notice the word, every, every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth, there's our word again, growth of the body for the edifying or building, of, building up of itself in love. So notice that there's every, twice in, in, in verse 16, what every joint supplies, every part does its share. See, there's two pillars to making disciples in the church of how it works. You have one pillar that's the, the people in those office gifts that are equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That's the one pillar. Then there's another pillar called the body using their gifts. And that pillar is both going at the same time. Some churches are all equipping and no gifts are going on. No spiritual gifts. No people, you know. And then there's one where it's all spiritual gifts and no equipping. But to be a New Testament church with the book of Acts as our model, nobody else, the book of Acts is our model, we have to, and, the, and in Ephesians and the rest of God's word, we need to be engaged in both of those things. So there has to be equipping, but the, every part of the body needs to do its share using their spiritual gifts. And I would say in Calvary Chapel in general, I'm making a big generalization here, but I would say in general, we're stronger on the equipping than we are using our gifts. But the thing is, we believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today. There used to be so many churches that would deny that the, the gifts of the Spirit are for today. And then someone said, Pastor, you, you claim to have the gift of teaching. <laughs> I think that's a problem. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yes, there are gifts for today, but just not the sign gifts. You know, the miraculous things, the tongues, the prophecy, the miracles and all that. Those aren't for today. Those passed off with the disciples. Those were used to help get the church off the ground and all of that. And now he doesn't use all those things. And, and I, I, No. There's no Bible for that. Honestly, there's no Bible for that. So we have to believe, because what if, I wouldn't want to be a part of contributing to someone not walking in one of the gifts of the Spirit, one of the sign gifts that somehow people put in a different category, which God doesn't in his word, and now they're not going to be walking in that gift, or at least they have to work, God has to work against me in their lives to have them walk in that gift because I'm afraid of the supernatural, or I've been taught that way, or I, I can't control it as a leader, so I don't want to be a part of it. No, look to the book of Acts. It's a supernatural church, supernatural power. And he says when, all these gifts are all, all of this is for continuing into growth. That's how long it's supposed to happen, and we're still needing the, the church built up. Paul talked about spiritual gifts. We need to use the gifts to build other people up. I'm pretty sure that the body of Christ still needs to have the body built up. We, haven't, we, we see that all the time. So we need spiritual gifts. We have to have all the gifts going on. But they have to be done in a decently in an order and biblical. And that, a lot of times, if you've had a bad experience with the gifts of the Spirit... You don't want anything to do with them. You, want, you think that there's only one way to exercise them and that it's unbiblical or fleshly or whatever, but there's a way that's biblical. There's a way that's right and appropriate and where the Holy Spirit is, is not interrupting himself and where you know, people are under the control of the Spirit. And there's things that are biblical and, and all these things. It's, God's doesn't, I mean, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14 to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And he also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, do not be ignorant of spiritual gifts. How much ignorance and how much a lack of desire for spiritual gifts are in the body? Massively. 
And he says it right there. says it right there that we should not be ignorant and we should be desiring of those things. So we have to have both of those going on for disciples to be made. We have room to grow in both of these pillars. That's never going to stop. We're going to need to grow in those things. We all are going to need to grow. So God's called each of us to be who he's called us to be, to be mature enough to reproduce, to be able to lead someone to Christ outside the church without a leader helping you, to be able to lead somebody. And that's why we're starting this EE class again, and we're getting more and more trainers and all of that. There's going to be more and more slots available for that each semester, and those, that group is going to grow, and it's going to, there's going to be more slots for people to plug in and learn by experience how to do it. Baby steps. No one takes you out on the first night and says, okay, Pat, go. <laughs> and you don't know what to say. I don't know. You know. It's little pieces. Taking a little, little tiny story or a little thing that you just, even being with them at first is so scary sometimes. But then you get a little bit used to that. You see how God works and all of that. You see that people are receptive. You say, wow, it's amazing how open people are. That's one of the things I hear over and over again when people take this class. I can't believe how open people are to the gospel. They're so open. You know why we know that? Because Jesus said the harvest is ripe. He says it's ready. Nobody goes into a, a, an orchard and, and when they know it's harvest time and, and so are surprised by ripe fruit. They expect it. But we don't expect it because we don't believe what Jesus said, that it's ripe. But if we believe what he said, we're going to be expecting a harvest. And we're going to be reaping fruit. It's beautiful. So God wants us to do those things. He wants us to be discipled. He wants us to use our gifts and all of that. He wants nothing hindering us from being who we're called to be. To find out where our place to serve is in this life. To give our God isn't pouring into you just so you can have a blessed life. It is true he wants you to have a blessed life, but it's his definition of a blessed life. His definition is that you'll, you can be a conduit or a vessel through whom he can, who can work. And you can get your eyes off of yourself and bless other people and affect people's lives. This world is careening out of control from a human standpoint. They need us to be able to preach the gospel. They're lost. They're, they're empty. They're, without, they're, they're, they're thinking all, all there is to life. Is this just existing and going to work and coming home and the frustration of that? and just There's got to be more to life than that. They're out there thinking that. They're in their homes at night crying, depressed. Like, what is this life about? They're contemplating suicide. Some of them are committing suicide. We have to be there, church, with the gospel and the answer and be able to say, I love you more than what your approval is of me right now and risking your rejection of me. I love you more than that, and I'm going to tell you the truth. And, and, and the Holy Spirit's going to just... Boom! That moment just show up in such a powerful way and they're, they're tearing, they're crying, and they put their faith in Christ and their lives are transformed and you're going to be a part of that. That's all of us. Every single one of us, God wants that to happen. Let's pray together. Thank you for the beautiful reality, Jesus, that you build your church and you do it so well given the opportunity to have freedom. Father, we have no interest in micromanaging anything that you want to do. We want to have our hands off of it and let you directly do the work because you know how to build. So we pray, Lord, for our church, which is your church. We pray that you would build and expand your kingdom among us as we step out and are faithful 
in what you've called us to do and be. We thank you for how you've laid it out so beautifully in Scripture what a church is supposed to be. Lord, keep us from straying from your biblical model. Protect all of our hearts against thinking we know better. Jesus, we recognize that even by the end of the first century, you're correcting churches and you're writing letters to them through John to correct things. We know you're patient and you're gracious with us. We need that. So help us, Father, to be the servants you've called us to be. Help us to love one another increasingly. And we thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.